0: Hello and welcome to Bad Gays, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author, and today's guest is the writer, editor, and translator Max Fox. He is the translator of the first English edition of Amphitheatre of the Dead by one of my favourite gay authors, uh, Guy Hockenheim, and is an editor of the Journal of Gay Communism, PINKO. And he's just finished the task of compiling and editing Sexual Hegemony, Statecraft, Sodomy, and Capital in the Rise of the World System by Christopher Chitty, following the author's untimely death. Sexual hegemony is a major intervention into the history of homosexuality, looking at the relationship between anti-sodomy repression and the rise of the bourgeoisie in early modern Europe. And I think today we'll cover some of those topics, I hope, in um, in today's episode. Um, before we start, how do you say it? Hegemony? Hegemony?
1: I, I say it hegemony, but I don't... I, that, that could be a British or... Uh, yeah. Uh,
0: Is there a a right way to say it?
1: I don't remember. You know what? It's funny. I um, I I my I I, my first that copy editing thing for for Verso was Perry Anderson's book about called the H word about hegemony, (laughs) and I'm sure there's a long sort of disquisition on how the G is pronounced, but I don't remember.
0: Well, well, you should ask him because I'm sure if anyone knows, it'll be Perry Anderson.
1: (laughs) exactly.
0: Um, well, thanks for joining us today, Max. Um, so, um, yeah, wh- who's the bad guy you want to talk about?
1: Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. Here. Um, so uh, so the subject I'm going to talk about today is relatively obscure character, though, um, if you uh, have read only the first couple of chapters of um, sexual hegemony, you will recognize the name. Uh, because he kind of opens the whole book actually. Um, And so there actually isn't very much in the historical record about him, but what there is um, testifies to his notoriety um, and specifically his notoriety as a sodomite. Um, And so given the society that um, noticed him, that's a fairly significant distinction. So I can't really make a big claim about his Personal historical impact, but what he does allow us to do is to sort of peer into the rest of the society um, and discover the reality of homosexual behavior in it. Um, and since he enters the historical record due to laws uh, whose impact was meant to scare other men off from engaging in the sin of sodomy, um, the very least honor that we can pay those legislators is to use his example to discover precisely how their project failed. Mm-hmm. Today's the bad guy I'm talking about today is um, Lorenzo di Zanobi di Magno, uh, also known as Pacchiroto. Um, he comes to the attention of history in late medieval Florence, where the Alto di Guardia, uh, which is the more sort of severe of the two um, Florentine police bodies that have special jurisdiction over sodomy in the city, um, has sentenced him to a public humiliation, um, which is actually something uh, that they only do relatively rarely. And though, even though we'll see sodomy was so widespread in Florence that you really, you can't actually call it um, meaningfully a queer practice in the sense of being sort of um, socially dissident or sexually distinct. In 1486, uh, the city takes the extraordinary step of carrying out one of their sort of harshest punishments that's prescribed for sodomy um, and performing a ritual shaming on this uh, this poor guy, Pacchiarotto. Possibly because he wouldn't or couldn't pay his fine, that was normally the sort of um, penalty. Um, though it's also likely that he was just—he he was so no, notorious as a sodomite. He just was like a an unrepentant um, uh, sort of um, offender.
0: Yeah, you can't turn a blind eye to it anymore. It's like too too much and has to be tackled. Exactly.
1: I mean, every, everybody knows him as a sodomite. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, so I'll read the whole quote of um, what happened to him that we get from the Florentine chronicler, um, Simone Filipeppi, and I'm sorry, I don't actually speak Italian, so I'm gonna mess up these names. Um, it happened that Pacchiarotto was arrested as a sodomite and under torture, he confessed unheard of and extraordinary filth and also a few petty thefts. Whence he was convicted, and a very large mitre was placed on his head. And then he was whipped around the piazza of the, um, the signoria of the sort of the city, the main city, or the main, uh, the main square. Um, and when he got in front of the lion, uh, he got 12 lashes. And then he was led to the center of the new market, and here he was given 12 more. From here, he was conducted to the street of the furriers, where he had been caught several times at such rivalry. And here, he got another 12 lashes. And then he was led to the Stinke, the municipal prison, where he was confined for life. And he was put in the prison of the sodomites, the thieves, and the blasphemers, who were all waiting gaily for him. And when he arrived, they made him their new captain merrily singing together for a little fun, and he was so well looked upon by the group that they sat him at the head of the table with another mitre, even bigger than before. Poor Pacchiorto was weeping because of the shame and because of the pain of the flogging, but seeing among those ribalds, some who had their foreheads branded, some without noses or ears, some with only one arm, and others who were worse off than he was, he was somewhat consoled. And thus he remained very honorably in that place for several years.
0: Oh, wow! Yeah. So, like a prince of prince among thieves,
1: exactly. The king of the the king of the sodomites, the captain of the sodomites, right?
0: Yeah, it's got kind of like a, a bit of a Jeanne feel, right?
1: Totally. Yeah.
0: Like amongst like the most the... outcast, he becomes like he finds like the 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 pride.
1: Yeah, it's a really yeah, it's a really lovely little scene that is, is he's described. Um, yeah, and so, you know, this is a vivid account that, um, sort of suggests a number of notable aspects of Florentine society. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot more sort of in the record that I've been able to find about Pacquiotto other than this. So we'll use him as a kind of an entry point into Florence. Um, you know, so it, it draws us a map of where Florentine power takes place lives, right. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives us a little sort of, like you said, a little like Genet style like counter hegemonic um, sentiment among the condemned. He's like a, you know, he's like Lucifer making a heaven of hell, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it, it seems like it gives us a sense of the Florentine uh, posture regarding Sodomy in the late 15th century yeah
0: that doesn't that doesn't seem so out of kilter with the kind of the way i'd assume people were treated you know in sort of late like medieval europe
1: exactly yeah so um and yet yeah so you know you might you can easily imagine this is like because it's such a spectacular punishment you could easily imagine this as like a constant threat against people like that mm-hmm. right um and that was the point of it um you know the kind of the traveling spectacle of his humiliation sort of leads him from the sites of municipal power and authority to the sort of cruising spot um, uh, where he's been caught with his pants down a number of times um, and then to the prison. Um, so, you know, he's, he's kind of, he's being led on a, on a public tour through the city that links the site of law, the site of transgression and the site of punishment. Um, by kind of um, shamefully and violently displaying his body, it's like a kind of um, anti-pride parade, right? <laughs> um, and you know, and they're they're trying to assert, they're doing this to insert assert control over the behaviors uh, of men who would see themselves as, as as implicated by his fate, and if not, give up the practice of uh, you know what they call this unheard of and extraordinary filth, um, at least they might conduct it more discreetly than um, our notorious sodomite, Pacchiarotto. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and so uh, Michael Roche, who um, discovered this sort of this rich archive of uh, Florentine attempts at regulating sodomy that um, I'm sort of drawing from uh, directly here in his book, uh, Forbidden Friendships, um, he writes that um, Sort of after asserting the municipality's sovereignty, the message was carried into the territory of the the enemy to deride not only this sodomite but all sodomites. Um, and this was actually this is sort of explicitly the, the the intention of these punishments. Um, it, you can see it in the preamble to a law that was passed in uh, 1458 to sort of um, uh, shore up the workings of the. There's a, there's two offices the the Ordo di Guardia and the Ufficiali di Notte. And this one is um, what this law is about. But it says... Um, Ufficiali di Notte. Yeah, the the officers of the night or the night officers.
0: So is this like a sort of proto-police force or is it like a public morals um,
1: company? Yeah, it's... I hopefully we will get into it more in more detail. But okay. yeah, the, they're like a, a police squad or a vice squad that's specifically... Mm-hmm. Sorry, um, specifically tasked with investigating sodomy oh well, wow. okay um and that's what this sort of book uh that roki wrote uh, is about yeah I'll, I'll get into this more but um it's you know it's it's it's, it's a unique thing to have um mm-hmm. there's only sort of two other comparable sodomite squads um and in, in, in europe at the time there's one in, in venice and there's one in Lucca. yeah what happens with 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 that the the office the night officers is really interesting and, and that's sort of what i'll get into later but so yeah so you have these spectacular punishments um where uh the law that sort of um uh empowers this police body says the penalties against sodomites are intended not only to punish those who have erred but also to strike terror in those who might want to err so it's like this kind of Pedagogical or um, disciplining
2: motion, mm-hmm. right?
1: And you know, so far, yeah, this is a relatively familiar picture of how sodomy and sort of religiously inspired state oppression, repression, um, happens in, in in like medieval Europe, right? Um, and this kind of fits the standard sort of bourgeois gay history narrative, where um, the past is this kind of strange place of irrational sexual constraint and punishment and sexual minorities uh, as we recognize them today are subject to this sort of constant public torture and humiliation, if not repression. Um, you know, the, we, we think of somehow the whole society was an enormous closet, right? And, you know, you know it, this, this picture of the terrifying past kind of flatters the present as, uh, as more free more enlightened more sexually healthy etc., mm. etc., cetera, et cetera, et cetera. um
0: like an ever present an ever an ever constant sort of arc of the moral universe almost like that we're always exactly. we're, we're always liberalizing
1: exactly yeah now we know better yeah um, and and bad bad things don't happen now right we're not we're certainly not repressed anymore um
2: yeah and and uh,
1: it only
0: goes forwards never backwards
1: exactly and it was worse before too yeah um, and so, what's interesting about this is that, among other things, um, it kind of relies on taking the law at its own word, right? right. Um, and uh, but in Roki's book, uh, which kind of uh, looks very, very closely at at the records of this of this police body, um, he finds that this this story isn't true, basically. So the Ufficiali di Notte, or the night officers, set up a relatively unique system um, for managing sodomy in Florence. Um, they were founded in, in um, 1432. They were both kind of the, the two the two offices, the the night officers and the, the Ota di Guardia, the eight of the eight eight of the guards. I think um, they were both uh, kind of special magistracy, magistracies of. hearing hearing cases or investigating cases of sexual morality. Um, So mainly male sodomy, but also heterosexual sodomy. They were also later responsible for um, guarding um, uh, convents. So the sort of sexual morality of nuns. Um, And they were also responsible for taking the fines that they would extract from sodomites and um, putting them towards these like anti, anti-brothels, like um, sort of uh, houses for reformed prostitutes. Hmm. So basically, they were they were in charge. They're these special sort of police bodies that were in charge of, um, if you think about it, any kind of sexual activity that happens outside of the family, outside of the household. Yeah. And what Roki finds um, is that even though you have this kind of special police force, which you could... Very easily take to be evidence that there is this like particularly repressive sexual regime. He finds that it was actually a way of it was actually quite lenient, basically. Um, and so the way that they the way that they operated was mm-hmm. they would grant immunity for offenders if they um, named names, if they self confessed to name their other partners. Um, and so that makes the records of this office extremely valuable for giving a kind of you know not exactly a census but like a, a, a sort of a cross-section of um uh you know where who when and how sodomy in florence um mm-hmm. takes place um and you know it, it uh it lasted for about 70 years it was a particularly sort of tumultuous period in Florentine history, um, and, a a particularly tumultuous and sort of decisive period for the, um, birth of the modern capitalist world system, um, which had something to do with, uh, Florence's role. And so it's this very interesting sort of like record of what sort of sexual activity specifically among men, um, was like in this moment of transformation. Um, and so, what Roki found was that sodomy was actually extremely widespread practice for men in Florence at the time. Um, men of all classes and stages of life participated in it. Um, you know, it sort of not only mediated in a negative way, but it confirmed and even sort of shored up masculine identity. Um, it was mostly governed by an age distinction. So um, sodomites were those men and youths uh, like eighteen to thirty-two year olds um, who fucked boys and adolescents and to be pursued by a male suitor was something like a healthy part of boyhood. Um, that is, it, it sort of says nothing about the exclusivity or the nature of the man's desire um, to take part in this.
0: So kind, so, of, so kind obviously- of like, like the Greek, like a Greek model, you know, of like, um, yeah, like, a and, and and what the, the, the older partner would be the active partner in it. Yeah. The- so it's really similar in fact to to like the greek and then later like roman uh empire model totally
1: yeah so he's saying i mean he's looking very specifically at florence but he's he's making the claim that this was actually the kind of like dominant um sort of sexual order in the mediterranean basin this is the the traditional or pre-modern um uh way that the sort of the societies around the Mediterranean conducted themselves. Um, And um, yeah, obviously it could be seen as a type of indulgence or sort of irresponsibility if you, if you sort of did it outside of the age um, uh, uh, sort of brackets that you're exposed to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, If you didn't, if you took part in the wrong role, if you're an older bottom, that was uh, sort of really, unthinkable gender transgression
0: yeah um, this is this is something in roman the roman empire they said about um julius caesar that he right was, that, that there was um that he, he was obviously sort of obvious the great figure for the roman empire but there was this oh he was always tainted by this thing of the fact that he was an older bottom
1: right whereas whereas every man probably when they were a boy had a man who fucked them yeah and that mean that that was uh, you know uh unremarkable yeah yeah Um, but obviously, you know, there, there were these, at the same time, there were, you know, sort of punishments for, you know, doing it too much, you know, doing it sort of like carrying it out exclusively to the, to the, to the sort of detriment of marrying or neglecting your wife or whatever. Um, but like it wasn't, it, it it just, it didn't mean that you didn't have interest in women or that you couldn't sort of be married or you weren't, uh, sort of, uh, a normal healthy man or whatever you have all these stories and in, 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 the, in the book of like wives complaining that their husbands are spending all their money on their boyfriends yeah basically. um but like and 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 it's the money thing it's like oh he's it's it's like he's 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 gambling or he's drinking with the boys but it's not like a story about his sexuality
0: yeah it's like a moderation thing It's like, yeah you can go, go down to the pub like once a week and watch the football but if it's every night then it becomes a problem for sure
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, in terms of the legal attention to it, what Roki finds, it's um, only the older active partner is ever really subject to punishment. Um, and, uh, you know, you, I mean, they would still sometimes sort of threaten, like they would extract confessions by threatening the boys with imprisonment or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, so like in terms of in, in our, our modern sort of categories of, 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 of sexuality and gender, um, it was, like I'm saying, as a pretty different sexual order. But in, in our terms, what we're looking at is a sort of a police squad that is only interested in criminalizing tops and only interested in criminalizing tops in relationships with problematic age gaps, um, but not for the age gap itself, right? Like, that's fine. It's medieval. But that, that's, sorry?
0: Medieval Twitter. Uh,
1: yeah, exactly. And yeah, so if you want some some sort of data numbers about this. He sort of ventures account of how widespread it was. um, And I'm quoting here, um, considering the number of people who came to the night officer's attention from 1459 to 1502, which is about uh, 350 annually, and factoring in their typical age description, distribution, excuse me, it can be roughly estimated uh, that by the time they reached the age of 30, at least one in every two youths in the city of Florence had been formally implicated in sodomy. By this court alone, There is another wow. court. Um, and by age 40, at least two of every three men had been incriminated. And
0: So, so, so this was just fully the norm? Yeah. This is what most people did?
1: Yeah. Most, wow. Okay. Most men. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah. So, Roke is like it's safe to say that um, many, if not most, Florentine men engage in homosexual activity at some point in their lives. Um, this, this is what I mean that it's, uh, by it's not it's not particularly queer in the sense that mm. we understand that. You know, it's like it's this is simply a sort of organic uh, attribute of uh, of male you know, sexuality. Yeah. Um, it didn't form a sort of subculture. It, it did expose you to some kind of legal risk, but like no more than being a gambler, really, um, uh, or a blasphemer as we see in the sort of Pak story. But you could all, but then you do have these characters who are like Pac-Kiroto who um who are so like inveterate uh, sodomites um, that somehow they need to be, um, they need to be sort of curbed. Um, and brought
0: back into the kind of the norms of. um... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's maybe perhaps, um, perhaps this is like a, a, an analogy too far, but it's kind of almost like drinking or something in say British culture, which is that everybody does it. It's like, you know, it's, it's, um, it's tolerated even though like perhaps it's understood as perhaps a social problem, like binge drinking is, but, but, and, and, and there's a risk to it at all times, you know, like being drunk in public is, or being drunk and disorderly in public is theoretically a criminal offense, but most, loads of people right. get away with it, but everyone exactly. does it. But, but, but there are some people to take it too far, or they're seen to like, um, transgress it because it becomes their whole life, and then therefore it becomes something that interacts with the state.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, and the next part of the quote is that it was Roke is, is saying, sort of describing exactly that, Sodomy is inextricably enmeshed in broader forms of male association and sociability in this community, from youth group camaraderie to neighborhood ties, uh, from occupational solidarities to patron-client relations, from kinship bonds um, uh, to networks of friends. Um, And further, the nature and widespread extents of of sodomy were such that the notion of a distinct and the coherent subculture is 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 too all inclusive and too limiting to convey the experience adequately. And yet this this was this was still a little bit um, supposedly unique in Florence, um, the sort of extent that they they were so governed, the men in in Florence were so governed by sodomy, right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, in fact, Florentine men were so notorious for their sort of widespread style of, um, Amore Masculino that, uh, throughout Europe, Florence is the new metonym for sodomy, right? In German, um, the word for a sodomite is a, a, a Florenzer. So sort of metaphorically, uh, Florence itself becomes the new Sodom.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So. In 1432, it's, it's, this foreign reputation is one of the reasons why they established the Officers of the Night in, in the first place. Um, and like I said, because it's so sort of integral to the social form of the city, there's a lot of reluctance to actually set up any kind of new legal apparatus, right? So it takes about 30 years of back and forth between the kind of like the, the vocally religious anti-sodomy lobby um, and the, the actual sort of governors of the city who understand that like in a similar way to drinking, like if you're seriously going to crack down on what is such an organic component of your populace's daily experience, you're going to risk a lot of um, bad feelings at the very least, right?
0: Yeah, and also presumably, if if you said as, as you said, it's tied in with um, you know work, occupational solidarity was the term used, and then commerce and education and things like this, then the the repercussions and implications of, of cracking down it could become more serious and simply, yeah, like I mean, this this is the majority culture.
1: Totally, and I'll get into this later, but yeah, it this this problem of how do you balance you know the the desire to sort of curb what can be a sort of excessive form of, you know, because obviously like, like drinking or whatever, you know, you can, or maybe not like drinking, but, um, you know, romantic entanglements can become politically problematic, right. They sort of, uh, they end up sort of forming factions or when things go wrong or they can, um, you know, you have, you have, um, abuses that need to be, uh, uh dealt with and if you have no way of kind of apprehending legally or what the sort of nature of the relationship is um it's hard for the state to step in and kind of like mediate and, and yeah of
0: course that. yeah that ongoing theme theme of the podcast really but yeah it's like these people in if 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 isn't if yeah these people in power who um end up giving um you know uh privileges to their partners or boyfriends or or, or breakups that you know you know yeah. office romance doesn't work
1: totally yeah i mean yeah this is a different topic altogether but you know you see how many political projects um you know parties or or publications or whatever um totally collapse because they don't have a way of managing um sexual and romantic harm right and so and the state is very i mean this is a sort of classic problematic for the state it's like how do you uh um to regulate this without becoming the kind of like uh you know draconian like inserting yourself inside of every relationship right like these mm-hmm. are the kind of problems and so what's interesting about this this police body is that they seem to have found a decent balance uh, to strike between this the sort of kind of like we'll give you immunity if you denounce your boyfriends um uh kind of thing um Chris Christopher Chitty writes it's like a way of kind of absorbing the amorous disputes into the edifice of the state right so like they get all of this uh information hmm. um that may that they, that they that can then sort of um act on at their discretion and it sort of brings yeah. the power over it um
0: That seems to be the key here like so the discretion so so if you if if you snitch basically then then you're 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 let off and Mm -hmm. but then presumably they don't act on all that information because what do they do then they just have a whole network of people all snitching on each other there must be an element of fear that you might be getting in trouble for it or do they just use it to say like okay now we know who all the sodomites are
1: yeah, I mean, tot- you, you, they do end up like issuing fines and sometimes punishing people, um, in the way that Paciurota receives. But that's like a, a rare a rare occasion, um, and that's one of the reasons why it sort of appears in this in this chronicle because it's so um, it's so notable mm-hmm. that it even happened. So there's these two there's these two poles, sort of right. There's the kind of like the city government um, that like is reluctant. To take away the pleasure of sodomy that it's uh, it understands its its sort of subjects to have a right to, um, and on the other hand, you have these kind of um, these preachers basically who are like, "Oh, sodomy is a, a sign of apocalypse and sin and moral dissolution, and um, that's why everything is going wrong in the city, and we need to get rid of all the sodomites and the blasphemers and the gamblers and the drinkers and whatever. Um, And so, yeah, so there's, so there's two sort of important ones in the history of this police body. They kind of bookend it. Um, The first one is uh, Bernardino of Siena, um, who's kind of this like prophet um, uh, who inspires the first law in uh, 1432. And then the kind of last one is a a more famous um, person uh, Savonarola, who, um, is the kind of, um, the guy who, uh, makes the famous bonfires of vanities, right? Um, he's this, uh, kind of, um, almost theocratic, um, dictator in, in Florence, um, uh, who in particular, he kind of trains these crews of, Um, boys who otherwise would have been the sort of objects of male attention um, to like be these kind of moral shock troops, um, almost like Red Guards or whatever. Um, And he's like, if any man uh, tries to, you know, make a pass at you, denounce him, tell him to repent and turn him in, basically.
2: Oh, okay. Um,
1: Yeah, and so, you know, the sort of back and forth, like, I'm not an expert in Florentine history, the back and forth is a little bit confusing. Um, So Savonarola is trying to reverse Florence's kind of um, transformation into a new Sodom by purifying it and um, uh, elevating it to become the new Jerusalem. Um, And he's kind of... Installed at the head of the Florentine Republic, um, as the French armies um, crossing the Alps and sort of threatening um, invasion, and so the Florent the, the the people of Florence kind of chase out the Medici and put um, uh, Savonarola in power, um, uh, sort of partially on the on the strength of his anti sodomy. Um, uh, sermons,
0: and that's because they, they're, they're they're facing this existential threat, and he's come along with the sort of the reason he's like, "Well, the problem is all the gays, or well, not the gays, so all the sodomites uh, yeah. and the drinkers and stuff. I'll I'll clean it up, make Florence great again, as it were, and yeah. you'll be safe from the invaders." Exactly. Exactly.
1: Um, and um, yeah, and it's you know, yeah, it's that is one of the that is one of the the dimensions of 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 this sort of dispute over how sodomy um, is addressed in Florence, right? Um, and actually you can, so I'm gonna go back to Pacchiaroto because he actually kind of helps us like navigate through the all the different factions. Cause it's, ne- it's, ne- it's never as straightforward as you might want it to be. The last we heard of, of, of Pacchiaroto he's been sentenced to life in prison in the stinke in uh, 1486 um and then philip Happy, the chronicler uh, who wrote that earlier account um says that he was freed when the prisons were broken on the expulsion of piero de medici from the city which was eight years later in
0: 1494 wow oh sorry i thought i thought when way you described it that he he was put there and lived you know died died in prison but no, he's he's out now yeah Oh
1: great!
0: Um, I'm reinvesting. Yeah. Sorry, cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's not gone. Don't worry. There's a little more, um, and so so already. That's a little weird, right? Because um, you know, if you think of Savonarola as this kind of anti-sodomy character, and then Pacirotto is freed um, on his sort of uh, coming to power, um, mm. you you can't so neatly draw a kind of line between um you know the sort of the 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 given regime in florence and like how sodomy exists in florence right yeah yeah um you know there's all these different sort of factions at play and uh you know obviously you know if you give any any history of any kind of bureaucracy there's always kind of like lags and sort of they have a sort of quasi-autonomous rhythm that they're always you know protecting their own interests and you know things like that
0: and am- um, amnesties have their own interesting history anyway in terms of you know people who people everyone knows that maybe are guilty of a crime are released or or even people who you know come to power saying they're going to clean things up um for, uh for empty jails in order to recruit more more supporters or more military power or you know
2: yeah
1: totally totally right or it could be that you know the sort of the emptying the jails and the Savonarola appointment um, to the whatever the, the head of the Florentine Republic. You know, were kind of achieved by two different actors, kind of operating oh, okay. simultaneously, right? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I just don't. I, I, you know, I could, I could have done a little bit more research. I don't really know, <laughs> but, um, but what's interesting is that. Um, you know, Pac-Irotto, even though he's been spent eight years in jail for this, um, he's still an inveterate sodomite, says Philly uh, Peppi. So um, instead of, I'm quoting him here, instead of amending himself, he returned to the customary rebelling uh, and was much favored by the compagnacchi uh, especially by Pipacello Giugni, who was one of the principal compagnacci. Uh, oh. Um And so I'll explain. The the compagnacci were a group of um, patrician youths who resented Savonarola's sort of moralizing regime and were uh, instrumental in kind of overthrowing it, ultimately. Um, They they took sort of direct action, first apparently by holding these lavish banquets um, in the city in sort of direct opposition to his new laws about pleasure, essentially, Mm -hmm. right? and then they started sort of harassing the Savonarola and followers, the, um, what's it called, the, the pianione. Um, uh, and then they started interrupting his sermons. I'll, I'll read another quote from Rokey. Um, the, the the Compagnaki staged a wild riot during Savonarola's Ascension Day sermon in the cathedral on May 4th in uh, whatever year it was, 1494, let's say. Um according to chroniclers, this revolt sparked the resurgence of all those activities that had earlier been repressed, suppressed. The brothels and other taverns reopened, men gambled in public, and it was said, sodomized with renewed zeal. Several scandalized sources reported that after the sort of tumult in the cathedral, no less than an eminent official of the republic gratefully remarked, Thank God, now we can sodomize. <laughs>
0: well how long have they been sort of yeah they must be pretty horny after however long it, <laughs> yeah. this regime Well, wow, so that's great so yeah. so so they're this sort of like group of young you said patricians so like the the, the children of the richer ones yeah yeah and they're, and they're kind of like rebellious kind of like a sort of like um I don't know, like jazz kids what's that film what's that film um about the uh, um like People in, like kids in the Nazi era who, um, who totally,
1: yeah, whatever that was. that was, um,
0: a similar vibe, you know, like they're, they're sort of rebelling by, by sort of politicized
2: merrymaking,
1: exactly. Yeah.
2: Right.
1: Um, and again, it's like, you know, this doesn't map so neatly onto the kind of like moral categories you might want to grasp, um, the sort of prior history of these things with you know it's not like it's not like the sort of the proletarian sodomites of the city rose up against the mean religious yeah. oppressors right um so like savonarola himself came to power with some kind of popular support um because they the, the people chased out the medici right um who were this kind of um fusion of um uh they were a a, a banking family, um, uh, and they were uh, related to the uh, wool and textile industry. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of this fusion of um, like whatever ducal or aristocratic authority and the kind of new like bourgeois, like mercantile yeah. class. Um, and so you could you can see how like that. Kind of um uh the uprising or whatever um could a little bit could, could be a little bit more easily slotted into the category of like this is a proletarian revolution or whatever even though then it brings in this religious reaction um and but then the religious the religious reaction doesn't actually like the people don't have a, a big sort of appetite for the you know these purification um campaigns um you know and and so that the compaagnaki even though they're kind of actually kind of acting out of a sense of patrician entitlement they're they are themselves the kind of vehicle for the popular uh, demand for relief from from this new' this new form
2: of uh, of rule
0: yeah I mean um, I guess as an analogy again it's not exactly the same but it's a sort of an analogy within um within uh the english revolution and the restoration you know that like even though even though there was a a huge degree of popular consent for for the civil wars and 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 um and what came after that the the sort of moral puritanism of of um of the interregnum is is uh too much and actually like yeah you can build quite a strong support for a sort of restoration movement by um by Oh, uh, what's the term? We can sodomize again, letting people sodomize again. Yeah,
1: exactly. Right, and so yeah, there's this. Yeah, totally. It's a really, it's an interesting sort of uh, historical dialectic, I guess, like mm. between these kind of these 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 various sort of contenders for the um, the cause of freedom and the cause of sort of. Uh, constraint or cleanliness or whatever order and so but it's funny that um the Kompanyaki really loved Pakirodo apparently right this you sort know. of notorious automite he's he, he he signaled something to them or they he let them party at his house or something I don't really know like we don't have a lot of
0: do, do, do you have any details on his sort of class position was he was he from that sort of patrician class or wealthy or it's not known
1: oh yeah i don't I don't really know
0: um I mean because there's also an element of course of like class tourism like if or or you know he he's a, a symbolic uh you know if he if he's well known for being like completely rebel dressed and free spirited and and what have you then like he sounds like a, a sort of person you know that young rich uh, aristocrats would who want who a party would like bring along to one of their parties as like a
2: mm-hmm.
0: a mascot almost
1: yeah. He's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that I don't really know. Um, uh, but the next sort of quote from Filipeppi I have is uh, something about that. Um was one of the most vituperative men at Florence. For this, his chattering and vituperating the life of Friar Girolamo Savonarola, um, he had at this time an office in the customs house, which he took without doing anything four ducats a month. Um, amazing. And uh, so it may be known that the quality of this man and of the others like him, and to know that this Pacchiarotto at the time of Lorenzo di Medici did almost nothing else but speak ill of him, not only in Florence, but also in Rome and in Naples. And in all these three places, I found myself listening to him while he was speaking ill of Lorenzo. Not only of him and his own, but also of how many other f- citizens Florence has that has a very bad, diabolical tongue. Maybe this is why the compagnacci liked having Paciordo around, is because he was um, uh, he uh, he was willing to be very vocal in his um, complaints, mm-hmm. right? And it's interesting; it's both it's both against Savonarola and. Uh, lorenzo de medici right he's not he's not like a sort of partisan of any one of the given um ruling factions but he's just like
0: yeah as with so many people in history it's these these bare bones are so interesting because it's like what do you choose to hang off it is this guy like a sort of um you know this like is he sort of like a drunken guy who will like have sex with anyone and 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 just slag things off you know you know this guy's a prick i hate this guy and that's like entertaining or he could also off this sort of information be a sort of gore vidal figure like a great raconteur invite along to your parties and he like has like a yeah like a diabolical tongue and um and a, a, a witty word against everyone and uh and at the end of the night he'll always leave with one of the the waiters or something yeah
1: totally and and he has a lot of free time because he never does this job, so he's always you know around to yeah right whatever to complain about some shit. And so, so to go back to the the, the sort of Florentine history lesson, um, you know the the Compagnaki weren't the only actors involved. Like the the Pope ended up excommunicating Savonarola because he was making um, sort of prophecies, basically about the need for. Um, moral restoration of the, of the church, I think. Okay, yeah. um, but basically soon after this sort of direct action in the, in the, in the church and on Ascension day, Savonarola, Savonarola loses power um, and ends up sort of bound at the stake in the very sort of central square in Florence that he had um, been directing his followers to do all these sort of bonfires of um, the, Symbols of moral dissolution. I don't think it, it I don't think it was some um, but it was apparently another sodomite, a, cer- a certain ribald um, who uh, uh, torched the pyre. that oh, wow. Sabanur- um, uh, burns up in, and um, apparently he's crying. This is in Roki. Uh, he's crying. The one who wanted to burn him was himself being put to the flames. So, I was saying before, like you can't really. It's hard. It's hard to say that th- these were like queer people in the sense that they like experienced like a, a sort of specific sort of social location due to their sexual desires or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, it's obvious here that this person like wants revenge on Savonarola for uh, attacking him, basically. Yeah. Right. I think what's detectable in this sort of 70 year time period that the um the officers of the night are are, are active as you see the kind of emergence of a distinct um identity maybe um and, you know it's not like complete by the end of it of, you know the time that it um is abolished but it's it's the process of sort of something new um yeah. attaining, like political reality
0: do you think do you think this is like a, a situation which some people will make the case for in terms of like the creation of pol- political subjectivities around well, not just around homosexuality, but especially around homosexuality, which is the persecution is one of the is, is instrumental in creating the subject of you know, the homosexual, like that beforehand they would like if everyone was doing it, it's just a thing you did, you know, you like you when you're in your twenties or thirties or whatever, you got a younger boyfriend and you got married or whatever but then this sort of directed specific persecution uh, becomes something that people recognize in themselves, like, okay, we are amongst ourselves equivalent to a class of some sort, a class of person.
1: Yeah. Uh, That's definitely part of it. Yeah. I think, Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's not, I think it's not only that there's this new level of persecution that kind of you know, focuses a kind of social attention or, or or pressure on 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 sexual practices that sort of like fuses them into an identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you also kind of have to have a sort of productive aspect of it as well. Um, and so, one of the ways that this happens, um, and this is sort of what the, the argument in um, in Chris Tucci's book, um, "Sexual Hegemony, is, is going over, is um, sort of the form that capitalist production takes um, of kind of sex segregating all of these um, uh, spaces, sort of um, uprooting entire sort of countrysides and dropping them into the cities and um, putting them on ships and sending them out to the sort of genocided um, colonies um, to settle requires or requires a kind of like new control over the sexual conduct of all these men who are now spending like the majority of their time together in these dormitories right? or,
0: these or whatever. Yeah. Like um, if, you, if you're, if you're a young shepherd boy or whatever, living in a countryside 200 years earlier, then like there's a limit to like the, the nature of what your sexual, like your sexual engagements can be. If there's only like 20 guys in the town in, the, in your village or whatever, yeah. once you start moving people from this like mixed Generational mixed-gender village with mm. these close social ties, and you move them to I don't know, like a, a weaving factory, and they live in a neighborhood with twenty or thirty thousand people. Mm. Um, theoretically, they can spend all their free time cruising, right? And that ch- sure. that changes yeah. the, na- the nature of their relationships, the, the the likelihood of them reproducing and or, or marrying, um, and the the nature of those relationships can become like very different. And and can have, have very different sort of knock on social effects on or relationships with work and stuff.
1: Mm-hmm, totally, and and also the you know the capitalists um, effectively don't care if they live or die, right? They're only they're only paying them for the and, you know, enough to come back to the, the the side production the next day. So the they don't have families, right? There aren't like house bourgeois sort of organized. Mm. family household sort of private areas that people are going back to where you can like have a kind of enclosed sort of sexual private um experience um so most people in these conditions are like you know sleeping in these weird dormitories um Mm -hmm. and they're all kind of mixed up in age and gender and whatever um and uh i mean this isn't there's there's a really interesting passage in in, in capital where he's quoting from all the kind of like bourgeois reformers who go on these weird sort of uh almost like safaris um and they're like oh my god these proletarians live in anarchy they don't know anything about like um uh not having sex with each other basically um they don't recognize any kind of sort of moral distinction because they're literally just kind of they're all stuck together in these weird slums right
0: yeah, like I like I know I know this story, I guess, um, in the British context from the sort of Victorian social reformers and the development of both like these, these sort of associations in terms of controlling vice and the development of anti sodomy laws at the time, but but mm. also in this sort of positive positivistic way, I guess, of, of like the creation of the model bourgeois family and um uh the, like the literally the victorians like the queen victoria's family being this model for the family for the rest of the country and then with right. this sort of very i suppose well-meaning social bourgeois ref- social reformers in terms of um trying to remove people from those conditions not just for their own material good but for say to, in order to save their souls and obviously the creation of yeah. model towns and these sort of factory owners um I just hate to say it it's still a southern race of Quaker, but the Quakers were like really key in this as well, in terms of, you know, like huh. um giving peop giving people their own dis- discreet family homes was not just about saving them from having to live in unpleasant, cramped conditions, but it was also about forcing them into a a moral life. I didn't yeah. no idea that it was sort of um manifesting maybe that early though.
1: Yeah, I mean it it's not I mean, I would say it's not it's not so sort of, you don't want to say like it sort of emerges fully formed in Florence and like yeah. is then a kind of like straight shot to the present or the sort of, you know, the Fordist like, you know, um, family wage supported household kind of thing. But you do see the beginnings of um, what is necessary for these later developments hmm. um, to sort of take hold globally in Florence. Yeah, so yeah. Florence is interesting. Uh, so the Northern Italian city states in general um, are an interesting historical sort of um, object because, um, you know, and this is debated and various people have different positions on this, but, you know, some, some arguments about the sort of origins of capital's development, place it there, uh, precisely because that was one of the spots where um, time changed, basically. Um, like, because of the high concentration of um, uh, like wool and textile industry in, in the Northern Italian city-states, thanks to families like Medici, you, uh, have the development and imposition of regular hours because you have all of these sort of employers paying the sort of the, the wool workers um, wages in, in a new sort of historical development. Um, and that kind of, because these towns were so devoted to this industry that kind of, they end up setting up these bills that kind of organizes the rest of the social world around the sort of the temporality that is dictated by um profit basically
2: um, right
0: so the the bond that that, that ensures that the, the people keep coming and giving their labor stops being the Feudal bond and starts becoming the, the the wage system that that yeah it doesn't really it stops being a matter of like caring that this you know this person um, swears allegiance to you and produces a certain amount of goods every year for you and it starts becoming like if you turn up um, and you you give your labour for this amount of time and uh, and then that's profitable then and I pay you this much and then it's, it's this is yeah an, an entirely different structure of life but obviously that has different effects and also different necessities and that like it doesn't matter if your farmer in the field is always drunk because as long as he's producing the right right amount of grain every year for you as the feudal lord but if your Mm. guy turns up late for his shift the whole system is knocked off kilter because of the technology right
1: sure yeah or or if you show up late for your shift then you're kind of fucked because you may not be able to sort of buy yourself uh you know enough to eat or the Know, right. whatever sort of lodging costs there are, whatever. Um, I mean, it, it wasn't, it, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm being a little bit schematic. I'm definitely being a little schematic. Like it wasn't so fully developed quite yet. Like it wasn't like just a system of wage labor, like all over, there were these interesting sort of guild structures. Obviously people, um, had artisan, um, modes of production. Mm-hmm. Um, but to go back to this, um, this book by Roki, you can, you can kind of see with the, like, excuse me, with the cross section of, of, because sodomy is so widespread, you get, you get a pretty good cross section of like, how many men are working in what industries, um, because they took all this stuff down when they're sort of uh, extracting these confessions. Um, And so you see like, um, you know, which places in the city uh, were like, cruising spots or whatever had a lot mm-hmm. to do with the different, where the industries were located. You see how many people like were parts of which guilds or didn't have any kind of guild representation at all. So like Roto, um is, is led to the street of the furriers. So the not, not uh, wool uh, workers, but still kind of like textile mm-hmm. or um, sartorial um, industry. Right. Because that's where uh that's where a lot of the cruising happens. And I think that it's, um, I think it's by the Ponte Vecchio. The Ponte Vecchio is this, the sort of the, the, the famous bridge over the Arno that I think now is like a big tourist spot. Yeah. Um, and he says that R- Roki says that like on one end of it, there's this infamous tavern that all the sodomites would hang out at. It's called the hole. <laughs> Just so perfect. I love it. Um, there's actually a, um, there's a really interesting, I'll, I'll give you the link. There's a really interesting sort of like um, mapping project that someone did of, of Pacurodo is sort of like shame parade that you can kind of look at all the different sites that they, that they took him to um, mapped onto the sort of current, hmm. you know, whatever layout of, of Florence. But yeah. So if I could go back to the the Pacurodo story, so, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but um, there is an interesting relationship between this kind of this problem of sodomy. How does the state relate to sodomy? Um, and will the state survive? You know, like these people keep getting overthrown um, because all the men get angry uh, when they try and take away their right to, uh, to fuck boys, not just Savonarola, but the, 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 the person who uh, they, uh, replace him with. This guy named Piero Siderini who um, is uh, historically uh, notable because he employed a certain Niccolo Machiavelli as uh, Secretary of War oh, wow. um, is the next ruler of Florence. Um, and uh, Roki says that it was sodomy again that was the kind of, um, the, his downfall. Um, uh, so in, um,
0: was he, was he pro sodomy or anti sodomy?
1: He was anti sodomy. Okay. Um, so it's, but so was Savonarola. So it's like, yeah. they, they keep, they keep overthrowing the rulers and hoping that they'll kind of like lessen the, uh, the crackdowns or whatever. Um, but there isn't a lot of strict correlation between that.
0: No, none of them realize that Sodomy's uh, sodomy is a vote winner.
1: Exactly. You can't run, I mean, you should have, but you can't run on, uh, <laughs> you know, a, 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 a chicken in every pot and a, <laughs> a, a cock in every boy's ass. Like you can't. Anyway, but so, um, so in 1512, these sort of partisans of, of the Medici, um, invade the palace and force Sodorini to resign. Um, and um, Roki uh, has a quote about this. It says, um, the youths then stormed into the chambers of the bewildered priors who were like a, a fly without a head, as he put it, and demanded that they revoke the sentences of all those who had been exiled or deprived office for sodomy. So yet again, we have the overthrow of a Florentine uh, regime, because all of these young men are so upset that they're getting all these sort of unjust um, uh, uh, prosecutions. Uh, so you can say the sort of like the Soderini's downfall and um, and therefore Machiavelli's exile and his sort of ultimate sort of composition of the prince um, have sodomy at the kind of origin of it so like the, you could if you want to be a bit grandiose you can say the sort of the, the entire sort of tradition of modern political thought is is based on the failure to adequately grapple with sodomy as the, the question of governance
0: um I, i've never read the Prince. does does machiavelli have a um have a position on sodomy was he a sodomite
1: I don't think he was, I, I I feel like I would have, I'm not a, I'm not a Machiavelli scholar either, but I feel like I would have, any of these accounts that I have read would have brought that up. Um, Yeah.
0: But also, as you said, like uh, everyone was at it. I mean, purely statistically on a roll of a dice, it's more likely he was than he wasn't. Certainly. But he's not Um, not making a a big deal out of it.
2: Yeah. I mean, he, he,
1: he, he's as familiar with it as everybody around uh, at that time. I mean, S- so is accused of sodomy uh, by, or he has a, he, has, he shows up in the records of the, um, of uh, these, the officers of the night. But um, the other thing that they had to deal with was uh, false accusations all the time. Right. If you if you, if you, well, if you yeah. grant, if you can give yourself immunity by accusing someone, then like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so, so that's one of the reasons why, uh, the, the sort of you can't take the existence of the sort of the sodomy police at, as sort of ipso facto proof that they were these repressive horrible anti-queer uh people because um most of the time they didn't do anything they would like yeah. investigate a little bit maybe if someone's accusation really seemed to have some mm. sort of uh, weight behind it but um it wasn't like a uh,
0: to to and to get a conviction, uh, there, does there need to be proof? Like I know historically, like that, that there's a very high bar for proving sodomy. I think, uh, at least in Britain, until um, uh, the Labouchere Amendment in the 1870s or I I mean, maybe 1880s, I want to say 82, I think that that you that literally, I think you had to have a, a proof uh, like a wit, independent witness, and it had to include you had to the man had to have a, a, ejaculated inside. Oh wow.
1: Um...
0: Yeah, that's funny. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I don't know what their their criterion for proof is. I know. I know it was like yeah. In other kind of legal um, regimes elsewhere, like in in um, in Turkey and not in the Ottoman Empire at the time, you have to have like four eyewitnesses. I think. Yeah. somehow. Somehow. Um,
0: who are probably all complicit if you're in a situation. Yeah,
1: exactly. Like if you have four like eyewitnesses. five dudes
0: like, witnessing it. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah but, um, but your question is about, or your earlier question is about Machiavelli. He never, he never like talks about it very explicitly. He's not like, and this is what the prince should sort of adopt as a policy towards sodomy. But he does kind of in... in semi-veiled terms sort of reflect on on all of these things so i have this little quote from his um florentine histories so he's talking about the unrest in um in the 1470s so under an earlier machiavelli rule there was a there was an insurrection that they had to deal with um, after the insurrection at prato the citizens of florence returned once again to their former manner of life The government was established upon a stable foundation. All suspicion was quieted and they abandoned themselves to the luxuries of life. All those evils now sprang up in the city, which are usually generated by the indolence of peace. The young men were less occupied and became more dissolute than ever and wasted their time and fortune in dress, in banquets, in gaming, and in the indulgence of sensual love." Um, And these customs were carried to a greater excess by the courtiers of the Duke of Milan, who had come to Florence um, in fulfillment of a vow. The Duke found the city filled with courtesans, dissoluteness, and all manner of corruption. Uh, But he left it so much worse at his departure that the better portion of the citizens esteemed it necessary to regulate the excesses of dress, banquets, and ceremonies by new statutes. And so the new statutes are these, these laws that they had to pass uh, uh, periodically to kind of reinforce or, um, uh, or restrict uh, the operation of these, the officers of the night. In this quote, it's not obvious, but um, these new laws also uh, sort of triggered a, an, an insurrection, another sort of fail, failure of the, uh, the constant threat of sodomitical, um, like, uh, revolutionary activity but yeah so so uh, Chitty um, in his reading of of, of roki notes that sort of these crackdowns on the networks of homosexual relations always risked blowback from a multitude whose consent and fear was essential to the regime's political power and indeed campaigns against homosexuality turned elements of the population against the Medici um, and yet again there was a kind of assault, um, at, at during in the, in the cathedral in this assignment okay. in Easter mass, what the story of this interesting, like police body tells us is that at least in Florence, uh, the policing of sodomy was a question that sort of bore on the survival of a given regime. Mm. Um, and, and Chitty says in, in his book that, um, uh, that's because sodomy, as a social act, reflected in the most immediate and embodied form of submission to penetration, the very structure of political economic power itself, and and that's why he can argue that sort of the, when they abolished the night office in 1502, that's that, that corresponds or signals a transformation in the structure of the Florentine states' political economic power, and in fact the sort of the turn of the That century um, is connected with the failure of the Bank of the Medicis and the kind of the eclipse of uh, the northern Italian city-states and and Florence in particular um, as the kind of hegemonic center of this emerging system of mercantile capitalist um, trade and social relations. Um, At which point it switches towards the the, Netherlands. yeah, the Netherlands, the Dutch, uh, Flanders, and Amsterdam. Um, so,
0: so, what happened to Paciroti?
1: Yeah, so um, I had to, I had to look this up because um, this isn't in the Roki, but and so I my my the trans the translation is uh, this is Google Translate giving us mm-hmm. the sort of his end. So I'm sorry if it's not as poetic. Um, but um, so by the time the office of the Night is abolished in 1502, which is after Medici come back to power um, and it's abolished, but that doesn't mean they stop police sodomy. That just means they sort of reorganize the jurisdiction into the regular sort of um, police force or whatever, the regular judiciary. So Pakirodo, um dies in like, let's say 1500. It's a little unclear, um, but even 20 years after that, he's, he's still such a notorious figure. He's still like the sodomite. Um, that you refer to. That again, in uh, a letter to Machiavelli, someone is is joking, like there's a a wool guild is making a request to Machiavelli to sort of find a preacher, and the the friend of Machiavelli's writing. is like, oh, that's as preposterous as as asking um to help find a wife. Wrong person. Yeah, and so so this is the sort of in the in the narrative that Philippepe writes. Then Paciroto died in Bologna, having become leprous all over and with an eye less, and the mouth uh, that went after his ears by divine judgment. And so it happens to those who walk these streets. So wow. yeah. there we have it. So Paciroto, the captain of the sodomites, right? Um, he's a, a chattering, vituperative, notorious sodomite. He's an anti work hero. He's a joke to Machiavelli and all his friends. Perhaps his contribution to the overthrow of theocratic reaction was um, complaining really loudly. Um, So uh, uh,
2: truly a model of revolutionary conduct for our times. Absolutely. Thank you so much to all of you for listening to our show. We've now been downloaded more than 325,000 times, which is incredible. And we're so grateful for all of your support.
0: And especially thanks to our Patreon listeners, without your help, it really wouldn't be possible.
2: It really wouldn't be. Um, and so we know you all know this, but we want to let you know that at our website, badgayspod.com, you can find a few very important things. One, you can find a link to our Patreon where you can support the show. Uh, second, you can find uh, some very beautiful t-shirts for sale. I'm wearing mine now, Hugh, is it not lovely? Very nice. Uh, And you can also find, of course, an archive of all of our past episodes. Uh, We don't work with a media company. We don't put anything behind a paywall. We just rely on people who think that we're doing good work and who enjoy the show to uh, back that up with some support. And so we're really grateful to all of you who do. And we also understand that if you don't want to, times are tough. So you can also just completely keep listening. But uh, if you do want to support us, that's at badgazepod.com.
0: Well, thanks, Max, for... um yeah like a fascinating story not just of, of his life but also of the sort of general milieu and scene of Florence at the time and the, the nature of i guess this, the the sort of early state's relationship with with sodomy which is which really unexpected like i i um i don't think people will uh, i me certainly didn't really realize the extent and the normalization of it and i think that's like a, a really interesting point which is that i guess i guess there's, um as you as you said earlier there's a sort of bourgeois gay history which posits that um i mean there's the there's a the sort of rickton Norton school of history which um, i mean he's an amazing researcher and and sheds so much light on but they, that i guess there's always been a homosexual identity uh and then there's a, the other sort of more bourgeois thing which is that maybe there's not always been a homosexual identity this is something that we raise a lot on the show you know that homosexuality has only really existed for 160 years, as we can understand it. But but that the, there has been a sort of thread throughout history of the, of like waves of, of of repression against men who have sex with men, particularly. But that this seems to counter that narrative. What you seem to be describing is a sort of situation where there's like a, a degree of almost political power for sodomites.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean the other dimension is. Um, gender, right? It's like this because this sort of sexual practice is is, is simply part of like uh, male sort of sex, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, any any kind of infringement on it by the state is uh, will encounter a relatively powerful like uh, counterforce.
0: So on on that note, if there, if there was, I guess this power. Some degree of uh, political power around sodomy. Um, mm. What what sort of implications does that have about the way that that sort of bourgeois gay history might think about the repressive role of religion?
1: Right. You yeah. So I mean, so I, I I'm drawing so much here from um, this book that I I edited, but you know, the main thing that you want in 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 Chitty's account, the main thing that you want to avoid is taking the kind of the result of a process of bourgeois development of everybody has the same type of sexuality same concept of of, of what sexuality is and then kind of imposing that anachronistically onto the past um yeah. and that's that's sort of in a similar way i was talking about how like you you know you don't want to take the law at its word right like obviously the law says that like you can't harm people but Everybody knows that harm still exists. You Mm -hmm. know, like you you can't, you can't imagine that like this sort of official narrative of how the sort of social works is, is actually what is taking place. And so similarly, like, even though like you get a lot of sort of anti sodomy mobilization coming from these, these, these priests, how should I put this? Um, They're not the, if, if, if you take a sort of wider view of like what this, struggle over sodomy like is in the in, in the sort of Florentine history that we're looking at they're not really the motivating actors like they can they can they can opportunistically seize on various forms of dissolution that are actually the expression of like a transforming social world and sort of agreeing with them that that's the the cause of that is because you know sexual practices have, uh, have become too loose or whatever ends up kind of shitty says it like it renaturalizes the very phenomenon it's, it's purporting to explain right you know if you're saying Florence has become the new sodom because sodomites are too free in Florence it's circular right you don't you, you need an actual kind of yeah. um, external cause to to make any kind of sense of like why at this point
2: um there's
1: they're more visible or they're more. Mm-hmm. Or, or or the religious sort of authorities are more bothered by this
0: and and chitty's and chitty's conclusion is that, that those causes that see this sort of wider reading and legibility i guess of sodomy in the social fabric are materialist, are based around reconfiguration of society because of changing labor practice and
2: basically yeah
0: so that's i mean that's that's really interesting as well so i'm going to bring it a little bit up to date here and talk about like i guess contemporary queer politics because as you said mm-hmm. as you said it's important for us to like not necessarily read back our sort of 20th century history all the way back there and say like people there was a there was a sort of 2000 year history of religious repression until the enlightenment i suppose and then and then gays started to like speak up for themselves like that's not the form of life that people had like that's not the relationship people had with sex um you know that mm-hmm. that, that pr- both proletarian and bourgeois forms of life uh, proto-bourgeois forms of life were very different yeah um which yeah it's like i mean like such an ov- such an obvious thing to realize although kind of quite hard to to come around to in a strange way you kind of ass- it, it's very natural for people to assume this form of sexual identities that we have now and you know that there's there's a there's a huge um there's a there is a social norm around sexuality as well um um, even in dissident sexualities even queer people and well gay people especially today but also of queer queer types of sexuality um yeah that that can't necessarily be read back i guess one of the the political lessons I, i suppose for 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 queer people Today, from that as well, though, is that um, you know um, your investments may go down as well as up. That 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 you can't take for granted. I mean, even in the twentieth century, you can see that that history that that, um, that the advances say in Weimar Germany can be rescinded in the worst yeah. possible ways, um, yeah. and that it's a the the, the political that political struggle around sexuality and reshaping acceptable sexualities is like a a constant process. Yeah, I guess the, the the question that arises from that for me, and the the the, the what makes the book so fascinating is this um, focus on this material basis for it, and how that interacts with a lot of left discussions around politics today. That that for people who for straight people, let's just be honest about this. Um, or no, not entirely, but but largely and especially for sort of straight white men that, that anything outside of the, you know, material politics, uh, my friend tweeted about today, but, but they said, like, you know, material politics is, is about, you know, is about white, white, straight is when when white, straight men are in struggle. And the rest is like ID politics, like yeah. identity politics. And I guess that's, what's fascinating for me is that, um, putting, putting the, the Chitty in the book has put so much research and evidence behind the idea that, um, the sexuality is a result of material forms, and then reflects back material forms. So it's not even say it's not even this this claim that that you know that queer people make a lot, which is that like sexuality impacts your housing and your job and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a it's a form of left politics and materialist mm-hmm. politics. But to go right down and say like the creation of sexual forms of sexuality and sexual identity or understanding of sexual identity is like super materialist you know sexuality is formed by the way that humans interact with each other in, um, which is shaped by you know material forces no is that a fair way to sum up
1: the totally, yeah.
0: Consequences totally. of the
1: it's it's in some ways it's kind of meaningless to talk about these men as as queer right because there's no because it's it's totally um, it, it it just doesn't even though they do come in, into contact and in conflict with the state over the kind of the sort of attempted like police apprehension of, of their sexuality or their pleasure. They don't constitute any sort of distinct sort of social experience. They don't have a, they don't have like a, a different fate that is sort of theirs by virtue of their, the type of desire they have. Um, and, and that is kind of the sort of determining factor um with with queer people today. So mm-hmm. like um and and that change, what was necessary for that transformation from that time period to the present to happen was the kind of like obverse of the story that Chitty is telling in his book, but it's the installation of a hegemonic heterosexual family as the shared natural expression of pleasure uh among all kind of members of, of society, both Bourgeois people and proletarians who—it was only recently that they were um, sort of extended the right to to property. I mean, in the beginning, like I don't—I I haven't done a lot of this research myself, but he mentions that you know, in this transition period, uh, they weren't—they weren't marrying. Like, they like the church wouldn't do marriage ceremonies for uh, for these sort of um, uprooted, uh, dispossessed peasants because they were like, well, you can't actually reproduce yourself stably. We don't really want you to breed. Um, Yeah, there's I mean, there's a really amazing article by uh, another uh, Pinko member, Shell Bryan, about the kind of like the way that the demand for the family and the demand for family abolition was the central sort of tension in in the classical workers movement um, because family was a kind of political prize that was that was uh, withheld uh, from proletarians. All right. And so, and so sexuality is like, I mean, sexual, I mean, obviously it's like, it's very difficult to talk about it um, without slipping into these kind of, you know, people just want to go towards pleasure type of explanations. But I think that's because sexuality is like classically, you know, in the sort of, at least in like the anthropological tradition, that's classically where you like, where you discover the naturalness of the social order, right? That's like exactly where... The, the given kind of specificity of your of your sort of social arrangement finds like cosmic uh sort of stability
0: yeah and it's so- like the most important almost spiritual core of who who you are and you know like your right to live the life yeah you know the true the true life your true self that you know yeah. you, i mean even today within queer movements or mm-hmm. and, and gay movements you know like being your true self is the is the primary yeah. sort of its primary understanding of it, and it's not understood within a within a that material framework.
1: Yeah, but that wasn't a, a, a historical development. The the idea that everybody had any kind of access to that, or uh, would want to, or that that would be a legible kind of thing, like
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, it's interesting that I, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's interesting what's happening now around if if you look at some of the conversations online about like. Oh, around um, basically how to, how to think about like non-binary identities or gender, or whatever. And it's like, um, I'm not inside of this conversation. So I'm going to probably misrepresent it. And I hope I don't do it too poorly, but um, you see a lot of people being like, I found this term useful for me. I'm tired of this term. I don't, I resent having to use this sort of concept to express a gender. I don't even want to in the first place you know Mm. like why do I have to have like why is this why is this sort of uh demand imposed on me to like to to affiliate with this this category um and I think a lot of people correctly are locating that demand in the long history of kind of um, colonial expansion Mm -hmm. um like obviously when sort of white European sort of social norms expand over the globe, they encounter very famously societies with different gender systems. Um, and so bringing a bunch of different people with different traditions around what gender you can be into a kind of binary gender, and then now trying to kind of amend that with like, okay, well, we can, there, there's, you know, we can, uh, we can give you this kind of like non-binary version of that as a kind of like, almost like, you know, decolonial uh, project, you can see why people would be like, oh, but I don't even, I don't even fucking want that in the first place. Like, I, why, like why do I have to manage, oh, wow. yeah. Like, why, why do I have to use these terms? Yeah. Um, you know, and I, obviously it's not, it's not strictly analogous because these things are so related actually, like gender and sexuality and uh, the colonial expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all kind of implicated in each other historically. But um, yeah, that's, that's just to sort of try and illustrate like to even get to the point where you find yourself having to kind of give your truth within the categories of like your, your pleasure. And then, I mean, in, in, a, in a, a kind of logical sense, if you're, if, you're, if you're a Marxist and you understand that truth of the social is its domination by categories of capital and profit then whatever your truth is is necessarily going to be a kind of an effect of your sort of material location right and like the kind of the you know the the specific way to 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 make those sort of links in the present is really difficult um and it's it's obviously it's the subject of quite a number of more or less successful attempts over the the history of the sort of queer liberation movement but uh yeah i think one of the anyway, at the very least, one of the interesting things about about Chitty's book and, and and looking at sort of these these sort of pre modern um, social forms as you there is a, as you can see there is a connection between these things, but you kind of have to like get there by thinking about the development of capital, and development of capital social relations. Otherwise, you just have like oh, there were some mean uh, religious people who like for basically no discernible reason at this point in history and not another point in history decided right. to start hating what was quite widespread of a practice. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in terms of it being then as understanding and talking about our sexuality as a, something formed by the, by those material conditions, then, um, then once you learn more of the history, I guess, then you, you, you know, then you see this is not, this is not a coincidence um, that, that, the, that the development of these forms was analogous to the changing material conditions in which people were living in. And, and one, once you have that conversation, then you can start to have the conversations about the fact that in changing our material conditions, we can also change our understanding of our, not not even our understanding of our sexuality, but we can change the forms of life in which sex and social relations that involve sex exist. Totally,
1: Yeah. I mean, very famously, like, you know, the, the classical in the, in the West or whatever, the classical sort of moment of sexual liberation takes place in the context of basically like financial crisis, right? The beginning of the sort of long downturn in the 70s. And, you know, famously, these kind of like ruined, empty waterfront piers in the United States and in New York, especially, that have been emptied out by containerization, um, and and filled with all these men who have all this free time because cost of living is still pretty low because um, they've just kind of like completed the period of post-war expansion in the United States, but there's no jobs. So they have all this kind of leisure available to them. That was the condition of possibility for inventing this new culture around public sex, right? And one of the reasons why we have this kind of nostalgic attachment, or I do at least, I, I see a lot of queers um kind of citing it as a as a kind of like golden period or whatever it's because we're kind of on the other end of this long cycle of economic sort of like development and sort of decomposition of you know the, the sort of social fabric that that this was able to kind of grow inside of
0: mm, yeah absolutely yeah well that seems like a really good place to draw us to an end as as, as usual well this is going to be an interesting question um Good gay, bad gay, bad not gay, good not gay. Right. I mean I mean I think sorry, I'm gonna just jump in, but I think like in, in terms of bad, like bad for his time, like he was understood as bad, right, by his yeah. by his peers, but maybe not, no? Because he, he seemed to be also celebrated.
1: Yeah, I mean he was, you know, he was um he was bad in the in the sense of like, you know, he received like the kind of the social punishment that was um most feared right i mean he could have been i guess killed but um uh
0: but gained a degree of celebrity as a result
1: exactly yeah but that but then they kind of yeah they kind of loved him for it right he was the captain of the of the sodomites and the blasphemers and the thieves so like you know i guess it depends like what your, you know what your uh opinion of crime is If like he's a bad boy you know it's yeah, like, well,
0: maybe he's great. like a michael alec figure or something
1: a l- yeah a little i mean he didn't you know i don't think he. yeah i don't think he like necessarily harmed anybody um
0: no, but it so, gains a certain countercultural rep, 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 reputation on the basis of his crimes.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely.
0: Um And gay, I mean, I think we've maybe covered that, but meaningless.
1: Right. I mean, yeah. Is he? A,
0: a, uh, a sodomite, a bad sodomite. A
1: sodomite.
0: Um, he sounds like fun.
1: Yeah. Uh, but
0: maybe awful. Maybe one of those guys who just, yeah, that won't. Quit at a party or something. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, could have been could have been a real pain to, yeah, to be yeah. around. Okay.
0: Well, thanks, Max. Um, so, if anyone wants to, you know, read more about this period um, and uh, this guy in particular, um, where could they look?
1: Um, this period would be found in the book by Michael Rokey that I was quoting from, called "Forbidden Friendships: Homosexuality and Male Culture in Renaissance Florence," um, and uh, I found that book because it's a big source for this other book that I was the editor of, Sexual Hegemony by Christopher Chitty. Uh, subtitle is Statecraft, Sodomy, and Capital in the Rise of the World System, and that is um, put up by Duke University Press, if that's important.
0: Yeah, I'm reading it at the moment. I can really recommend it to any of our listeners. It's, um, it's a fascinating book and really like one of those books that really – puts things into a longer view and um, sort of expands you know, those history books. It makes things make sense, which is, um, which is great. Um, well, I'll put all those um, and some other links in the show notes uh, for now. That's all. Um, thanks so much for uh, joining us, Max. Yeah. Thanks and for
1: inviting us. It was a wonderful conversation.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. And, um, and we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back with a slightly later season than, than, than normal. We normally would release a season around now, Um, but um, there's some things in the work. So this summer we'll have um, the new season of Bad Gaze coming out and maybe one or two specials more before then. My name's Hugh Lemmy. You can find me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy. What about you, Max?
1: I'm on Twitter at MXWFX.
0: And you can listen, you can find us at at Bad Gaze Pod or online at badgazepod.com. Until next time, goodbye. Bad.
1: Bad, 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 bad. Bad game, bad game, bad, 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 bad